Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Michael Bowie, the creator of Inpredictable. Michael, thank you very much for coming on the show. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you're looking to find your edge in sports betting or racing, you'll need to visit the Betfair Hub. From analysis to betting psychology, it has everything that you need. Simply visit betfair.com.au slash hub. Today, I'm joined by Michael Bowie, the creator of Inpredictable. Michael, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you, Jake. Thanks for having me on. So I must admit, this one's a little daunting, given what you've done in your career so far. Um, BS from Indiana University and a master's from Purdue and, and formal training in physics. It's certainly not my area of expertise or, or my skill set, so I'm a little hesitant to get involved too deep into the details, but I'm certainly looking forward to jumping inside your mind and seeing what your thoughts are on, on some of these things that are of interest. So just very briefly, why don't you just tell us about your background, how the, the site came to be? Um, obviously, it's a, it sounds like it's a hobby, but just tell us about how, how all that eventuated and then some of the, the the articles and topics that you cover on there. So yeah, as, as you mentioned, my uh, formal trainings in physics, since getting the, the BS or the MS from uh, Purdue, I've actually spent my career as a health insurance actuary. I had a lot of great fun. It's been a really rewarding career and got a, um, got to get a lot of training, a lot of work, uh, working with data, playing around with data, analyzing it. Uh, the healthcare system in the U.S. is incredibly complex, and so there's a lot. You can learn a lot of advantages you can gain by really diving deep into that. And, and how the, the site came about, it was around 2012 when I, when I launched it, and um, it was at a time in my career where I was transitioning more to a management role, and so I was doing less of the coding, less of the hands-on work with the data, but it was something I still really like to do. And so working on the site was kind of my outlet to kind of continue to, to, to flex that muscle, I guess, to uh, continue to code and to do it um, on subjects that I really like. I've always been a huge sports fan, so it was a, a lot of fun to be able to do that type of work, but do it on sports that I've always found interested, uh, found interesting and try to answer a lot of questions that I'd always wanted to know as a fan. And I'd always liked writing as well, and so it was an outlet for that as well. And so <clears throat> I launched a site back in 2012 focusing more on gambling and, and betting market rankings, which was kind of my initial foray. But um, it has just since expanded into just a general playground for me. Whatever topics I happen to find interesting, it's what I dive into and, and hope uh, others find it interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's I went back many years on the site and looked at a, a whole host of different articles on different topics, which I'm going to ask you about as we go through this episode. Just just briefly, when you talk to someone about actuarial studies or being a health insurance actuary, or, or maybe focused on a gambler, if, if a professional sports better or a poker player or a horse racing better came up to you and said, what on earth is actuarial studies? How does that work? In that mode, how would you explain it to them? Uh, that's a really good question, and um, I, I think it, it varies by the, the type of actuarial field you're in. And so I, I've um, got maybe more of a narrow view in terms of I, I've spent my whole career on the health insurance side. But um, you know, f- from the standpoint of what we're, we're trying to do, I mean, it's most actuaries are, are trying to just predict the future and uh, control risk. 
And so um, it varies from the type of field you're in. With uh, life insurance, you're often predicting things well out into the future, and so you have to take a very long-term view of risk and um, uh, things such as that. Um, on the health insurance side, it's very short-term. Um, you're usually predicting out the, the following year. Um, but uh, on the health insurance side, it's not – they make you learn a lot of math uh, to become an actuary. There's a, a huge battery of exams that you have to take to get credentialed. On the health insurance side, it's not a whole lot of math. I sometimes joke that it's uh, um, that the most complicated math you use is a weighted average, and that's changing a bit lately. But um, a lot of it is just really understanding data, really understanding the healthcare system, and understanding kind of where things are going, so that you can set forecasts and rates appropriately in a very complex and dynamic system. So you really got to know the data, you really got to know the system, you really got to know the business, how it works, how customers buy your product, how employers view it how it interacts with the government and regulations. So it's, um, it's a really complex line of work, but it's, uh, because of that, it's, it's always interesting, always challenging. There's never a shortage of, uh, uh, interesting intellectual problems to solve. It doesn't sound terribly dissimilar to betting markets, bookmakers, gamblers, and, and different interactions and interplay that goes on with that system. Do you, with respect to the data, is, is there a lot of objective measures, objective, um, things that you have to analyze or are there subjective elements that go into it where you can add a little bit of gut feeling or a little bit of domain expertise and knowledge that you've generated over the years that you can input into how you do it? Uh, there's definitely definitely uh, room for both on the health insurance side as well as on gambling. And I, I was thinking about this in advance and a question that could come up, I think it almost verbatim you could hear when somebody's trying to analyze, say, a, a particular betting angle or somebody's trying to analyze something from a perspective of a health insurance actuary is, uh, is this trend credible? And oftentimes what you find in, uh, as a health insurance actuary, um, health insurance data, it's very messy. It's very volatile. So you've got a small percentage of people driving the majority of the cost. So it can bounce around a bit. Um, it's very uncertain. It takes a while to pay claims. So you may not even know like how your book of business is running until five, six months out because you don't, you haven't paid all your claims yet. And health insurance data is just very messy. The healthcare system is complex. It's fragmented. And so um, you can pull the data and you can you know, take a look at it and it's going to tell you some really conflicting things. And that's where the domain expertise comes in, where um, you're really benefited from having being like a good agent, basically, and, and having a good sense of, you know, what should this look like? And so then as I get a new data, um, that can give you a, a good guide to figure out, like, should I trust this? Um, is this, you know, a cause for concern or, you know, have a way overpriced this product and we need to lower the rates because the experience is running really well or based on your own domain expertise, your own, you know, experience you've gathered over the years, um, you may be making a call that, you know, I'm not going to trust the state yet. It's volatile. Um, it may be driven by some particular large claim. And so the pulling the data and kind of getting in front of you is just the first step and really kind of making sense of it and, you know, providing stable consistent forecasts and pricing is, is the real challenge. And that is where the, the uh, domain expertise comes in. So it strikes me if I think about the health insurance actuary market for three or four seconds that all the firms win, they all make money. It's pretty simple and easy and it's not that difficult, which is probably definitely not the case. And I think whether it's gambling or if it's bookmaking, there is always a spectrum of, of good bookmakers and bad bookmakers, which is obviously relative to what we're talking about. And the same with gamblers. Is that the case in, in your industry and in your world? Are there 
better firms doing things better and even if you just take from a it might be a bad analogy but recreational gamblers might pick up a trend you know the patriots are six and oh coming off a loss therefore you know this week they're a good bet because they're coming off a loss and it's probably going to be seven and oh even though many will dispute the whether that's a, a predictive trend is that the same in your world where there are good and bad or different ends of the scale when it comes to what you're doing Oh, absolutely. Um, and you, you may see that less, you know, at a total company view. I think, you know, from a total company perspective, most uh, companies can kind of run their overall shop correctly. But um, when you're down to a market segment level or a particular product that's out in the market, um, there, there is a wide, ra- uh, wide range of um, experience and success. Um, and, and the market can get disrupted in lots of ways. Um, one example I point to is the rollout of uh, the Affordable Care Act. Um, the big changes came in 2014. And there's a lot of volatility there across the nation within uh, California where I work. Um, a lot of carriers, uh, some made quite a bit of money. Um, a lot of them lost quite a bit of money. And so you saw a lot of disruption and um, volatility in the market as everybody tried to figure out how this new market was going to work, uh, which had been completely uh, revamped by the Affordable Care Act. So um, I would say there's a very strong analogy to the, to the bookmakers. It's... Um, just given that the challenges in trying to predict such a complicated system, there are definitely going to be winners and losers, uh, particularly when you have um, big overarching changes like the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, that's fascinating. It might be a little off track, but does that mean you can potentially have a startup business that, that infiltrates the industry and wants to take a big bet or a big or be you know very risky and then how they approach something like the Affordable Care Act and maybe they can... If it's a gambling analogy, it might be minus 102 lines or something ridiculous like that to try and get very high volume and, and take a portion of the market. Is there something in your industry like that or is it pretty steady among the, the top players? It's a little of both. It is, it's a difficult business for a startup to get into because there's a lot of work that has to be done in contracting with a very complicated system with uh, doctors, hospitals, and so on. But there has been room um, you know, with the Affordable Care Act. There were a lot of startups that, that have kind of come into the market um, and have gained some market share. I would say the big moves have actually been trading more between the bigger players. So there's been some big winners in the market and big losers, but those are more at the larger player end. But there has been room for uh, some of these smaller firms to kind of um, edge their way into the market, but um, not in a, a huge disruptive way, I would say, at this point, at least based on what I've seen. Okay. So you mentioned there's a lot of data and I would imagine there's a heck of a lot of data and it's a very complex system and things are changing. There might be some volatility depending on new laws passing and regulation and things like that. How do you go about making sure you have clean data or making sure what you do have is is usable when you're talking about uh, putting these models together and trying to predict the future? Um, I mean, that's that's often the biggest challenge. It's some it's disheartening at times that, you know, how much we have to spend time just cleaning data and making sure it makes sense, making sure it's reconciling to other um, numbers that it should. So a lot of a lot of the work is just, um, you know, checking against um, like, you know, your financial data, things like that. And so um, uh, you, you kind of just, it's a skill that you build and sometimes an underappreciated skill. And I, it's um, something I see in sports data as well, where I've um, as I've kind of built my models out, um, I've almost gone astray in pulling in data that I um, realized in time that it was just you know completely wrong, or there was a field that I thought was defined consistently over time that switched you know in a particular year. So um, some of it's just kind of building good processes and good checks on you know certain totals, and some of it's just kind of building that that kind of intuition to kind of know 
if you have good domain knowledge and what you're doing, um, you can spot a data error a lot, lot better than if it's just, you know, numbers on a spreadsheet to you. So I want to jump over to the site now in Predictable, and I've read a lot of the different articles and, and different things that you have on there. Tell me, you know, when you have more free time and you want to put something on there, how do the ideas come about? What is triggered in your mind that sounds like a good idea to, to be an article or a lot of the stuff you put on there is, is using models and probably back testing things against different data sets. But when you're thinking about what might be useful to put out into the world, what, what triggers those type of things for you? Um, uh, the nice thing about the site, since I don't re- rely on it for uh, any income, it's, I, I can kind of, it's kind of answering my own idle questions about the sport. So as a fan, if, I, if there's something that I wonder about or you know, I've always wanted to look into, that's usually where, where it starts. It's something that I find interesting. Um, and then in addition, what I, I try to do is um, I try not to cover ground that, that's already been kind of covered. Um, so, you know, I may not be answering, you know, the most important question when it comes to the NBA or the WNBA or whatever sport I'm looking into. But what I try to find is you know, an area that, that people haven't really dug into before. Um, that's how I built out the NBA win probability model, which is a pretty key feature of my site. It was something that I saw like nobody had really built yet at the time, and it's like, well, somebody should. It's a, you know, it's a it's a important question to ask about the NBA. You can you know do a lot of cool things with it, and so, and it's something I always liked about um, having for the NFL. Um, in uh, Brian Burke's site currently of ESPN, he had a site called Advanced NFL Stats, and really loved diving into all of his win probability graphs for the NFL. I thought it was a really cool way to. Uh, visualize the flow of a game. And so um, a lot of it's just, you know, what I would find interesting, what I would like to see as a fan um, to help me better enjoy, you know, the sports I, I, I enjoy following. Um, and in addition, I also, I also try to find new data sources or, or new ways of looking at existing data. Um, like one example would be, uh, I've done a lot of work on how long NBA games actually take in real time. And the way I was able to do that is I just noticed within the play-by-play description field that um, there was just, within the description, it would say something like LeBron, J- LeBron James dunk and then 5.41 p.m. And so I realized, well, that's, that's kind of cool. That's, I've got a timestamp now for every single play in the history of the NBA going back to 96. And so I was able to kind of parse that out and do a lot of um, research on you know, exactly how long NBA games take and why the last minute of NBA game actually takes five minutes on average just because of all the timeouts and the fouling. So um, yeah, mostly it is like what interests me. And I do try to find things that are interesting to other people too, although I, I will admit I'm not the best judge of what's going to be popular on my site. Um, so it's, it's largely driven by what interests me. Well, and there's a diverse range of topics as well. One that jumped out to me was betting on horses with certain names. And, you know, intuitively, you know, if your name's Bob or Jack or Sally and there's a horse named that, then certain people might be more inclined to, to bet on that name. That's Those are the types of things that are somewhat interesting and, and may have interesting outcomes that may not be directly attributable to, to making money in betting markets straight away or anything like that. But I think the overall process of finding these types of things, looking into it and analyzing it, has certain value. Yeah, and that was a lot of, and that was a really fun project to do. I've um, my uh, family's always been uh, really big on on horse racing, and so there'd be Kentucky Derby parties, and um, we would summer we'd go on summer vacation in Vermont uh, for a while when I was a kid, and my dad and uncle would take take us to uh, Saratoga because uh, it was during August when Saratoga was running. So I spent a lot of time there. So I've got a, an attachment to the, the sport of horse racing, and, and that just came out of like how I would bet horses. Um, I never 
was a really good handicapper. But um, if there was a horse with Mike or Michael in it, I would uh, be inclined to bet on it. And so that's where that came from. And then it was a matter of just uh, getting the data to uh, prove or disprove that theory. And uh, with horse racing, getting the data is uh, by far the hardest part. Yeah, I would suggest people go have a read of that one. It's quite a fun read. I want to ask generally about betting markets. And I think one of the things I, I read on your site was around gamblers are Bayesians and how we react to the to the results of, of certain games. There's always a lot of talk, certainly in the mainstream media, about how how the spreads are created, whether it's two or three guys sitting in a room watching games and looking at power rankings and things like that, or if there are other things at play. And depending on where you look, there's a bit of a diverse range of how people think they come about. And obviously with the Bayesian approach, which you would know far more than I would about having certain prizes and things like that, just take us through your thoughts with your expertise on, on how you see uh, betting markets reacting to game results and then around that discussion. Sure. So yeah, that that, um, that came about one of the first um, projects I did that kind of got me kicked off in uh, sports analytics was trying to derive a, a power ranking, an implied power ranking for teams based on how the point spreads are set. And so I did that originally for the NFL. And as I was building it out, um, and I'll, I'll fully admit, I, I have very little knowledge as to how point spreads are actually set. Um, I, this is a very outside in analysis. But as I was building that model out, um, I kind of realized that um, you know, I was building it from the point spreads, but um, there should be informational value in what actually happens. So Patriots are favored by seven. They win by 14. Um, the market should be reacting to that. So if the if gamblers are uh, good little Bayesians, then they should be um, inching their estimated strength of the Patriots up a bit. Probably not by the full 14 points, um, but you know, nudge in that direction. And so I just played around with, um, you know, what would that nudge be? So if a team beats its point spread by 10 points, how much does the market react? Um, and with the data I had, I was able to kind of do it pretty systematically and, and figure out like what that percentage was that optimized predicting future point spreads. I think for the NFL, that worked out to like maybe 15%, uh, something like that. And I've got a kind of a different mathematical approach now for the, the rankings I publish, but, um, I was able to do that for all the different sports I analyze, and it varies from sport to sport. Um, and uh, what I've noticed, I think college football, um, the market reacts the most to actual results and how it differentiates from the point spread. And where it matters the least, and this shouldn't be a surprise for those familiar with, with how these games work, but uh, the NHL and Major League Baseball. Um, I think with baseball, I found that there was like no predictive accuracy in reacting to the results. And I think it's it's well established that baseball has very random outcomes, and the analysis I did I think validated that. Um, but it was interesting to kind of do that and kind of see how that varies from sport to sport. Um, and I recall now I was trying to look up uh, from your uh, one of your recent podcasts. Um, you had someone I think was from the Australian horse racing market, and I think he had mentioned a similar role that he had discovered many, many years before me, um, uh, the same type of approach where if a team beats its gambling expectation, the, uh, the gambling market will kind of nudge in that direction. Yeah. And it's, it's, it reminds me of a, a separate topic where, you know, you have those that look at market information, betting data, betting market information, like lines and spreads and totals and things like that. And then you, you use that as, as part of your basis moving forward. And then others who, They'll grab the play-by-play, let's say, for a, for a sport, and they'll just try and find how good are the teams, how good are the players, uh, have that type of model built. If you had to to choose one of those different approaches or just analyzing each of those approaches maybe, 
it, it sounds like the, the approach where you use all the market information might be a little easier in inverted commas than trying to predict um, or trying to grab all the, the relevant data you can and build out a model uh, from the ground up in terms of how good is a team and then what the, the power rankings might be and what the spread might be based on that as opposed to using all the wisdom of the crowds and other information that goes into some of these efficient markets. Uh, absolutely. And um, I've tried both and um, I've definitely tried for a few sports to kind of build one of those bottoms up models to see if I can come up with something that's more accurate, or at least kind of close to accurate to uh, the point spread and um, tried many approaches over, over the years and I have not found one that has worked. So I, I have uh, not been able to outsmart the market from the, the bottom up. And so my focus has been more kind of just deriving what I can from the betting market information. So I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts around some of the mistakes that are made with people accessing data and, and trying to manipulate it themselves to come up with uh, their own predictions. There's a lot of there's a lot of good research now in the world around you know fooled by randomness type stuff and, and misconceptions that are out there. What are some of the things that you've seen in your experience going through, certainly on the sports side, but just generally? with some of the bias, some of the patterns that may not be helpful that people get stuck on? Um, I mean, I think um, it's, it's definitely something you see a lot of, um, and both in the, the actuary side as well as the gambling side. Um, I, I think what you have to be on, on the lookout for is um, maybe results that look too good to be true, because I, I think what happens is the uh, the outliers get noticed and, and um there's kind of always a selection bias in uh, you know, publishing of trends where the, uh, the ones that, that don't look promising don't ever see the light of day. And so it's only these outliers that are probably driven more by just you know, statistical randomness that get noticed. And so I think, you know, way to guard against that, um, one, of them, one way is just to um, kind of test around the margins. And so I, I can share one example um, from something I've done on the site. One of the first things I did was trying to find a betting trend for teams that have had um, a big differential in defensive turnovers. And I had a kind of a theory behind it. So I think it's one step you also want to do as well as if you're you know, looking for betting trends, make sure there's like a, a rationale behind it. That's not just kind of purely data, data mined or data dredged um, uh, trends, but also kind of test around the margins. Cause um, I'd come up with just a, uh, a rule I picked off the top of my head, which said that if um, a team has 10 or less defensive turnovers than their opponent, you should bet on them against the spread because the, the market's probably undervalued them because defensive turnovers are, are pretty random. Um, and I think that that definitely is the case. I think the market does do that. But um, what I didn't realize until later was um, I picked 10 just because it was a nice round number. And that led to covering the spread, I think, at 59% of the time. So pretty good performance. Uh, but when I looked at like 11 or nine. So if I just kind of change my cutoff by one number, um, I think it dropped in both cases. And so I think what happened was I just happened to get lucky in the cutoff I picked, but it wasn't, you know, really indicative of long-term performance. And so I think that's, you know, one way to do it is just kind of test around the edges. Does this make sense? If I kind of tweak, tweak one parameter, does it go in the direction I would expect? And so, uh, that, that's one way to, 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 uh, um, prevent yourself from getting fooled by fooled by those those random uh, statistical flukes yeah that's that's fascinating do you th- how far has that come like if if you did something similar or were asked by by a professional gambler to do something similar 15 years ago 
uh, and then maybe looking ahead 15 years, do you think we're going to get better at being able to do those types of things far easier with um, you know, publicly available software even where everyone can go in and do that and they can factor in some of those things so they're not just picking an arbitrary number and they're doing it over a, a larger set of those numbers. So they might be able to do 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13 in 30 seconds in 15 years and have a, a better outcome as opposed to what you were describing? Um, I think that's definitely possible. I, I imagine those tools exist now. Um, I, I think um, <clears throat> I think probably the the challenge is less on the the uh, data and the software and the uh, techniques to analyze it. It's it, I think probably the bigger challenge is just the lack of data points to really know whether you've got a good trend or not. Um, and maybe that's not the case for a sport like college basketball where you've got like a ton of teams and a lot of games or the NBA, but. Um, with the NFL, there's, there's just only so many games in a, in a year, and so it's you can't run the season a thousand times, and so there's only you know so much the data only goes so deep, and so there's only so much mining you can do on it. So I, I imagine there's still an opportunity to to make those types of analyses easier, but I think where you'll kind of hit a brick wall is just you know the amount of data that you can analyze when it comes to game results uh, for for a lot of sports. So betting market rankings, you've dabbled in, in sports, certainly in horse racing, and you might want to talk a little bit about uh, RoboCap, I think it's called. Tell us, from a thought process perspective, when you're looking at creating betting market rankings, because most people who, who bet will do it in some form or manner, and there might be varying ways to do it. But just from your perspective, what what sort of direction did you want to take when attacking the the betting market rankings problem? Uh, so yeah, it came came about when I, I think I was trying to build just like a normal uh, team ranking. Um, and usually when you're building a ranking, you're trying to train your model on a certain outcome. And so I was training on like the actual, I think, scoring margin. So team A beat team B by 10 points. And I just remember thinking, well, instead of plugging in the actual result, which gets is pretty noisy and, you know, there's a lot of randomness in, in all sports. Um, what if I just plugged in the actual point spread as like the thing that I train my model on and pretty much everything I've built up since then has just been mathematical variations of that. And so, um, it was a way to, to essentially kind of distill the wisdom of the betting market in a way that wasn't you know readily available. So the point spread can tell you that the Patriots are 14 points better than the Bengals, but, um, it doesn't tell you whether they're, how much better they are than the Packers because they haven't played the Packers yet. And so, um, what I built out, which is kind of a way to, to use some pretty straightforward math, just linear regression to kind of figure out, you know, what the implied ranking was for the market. Um, and what I've found is, um, it's, it's a pretty accurate ranking. It's, it's hard at times to kind of really judge the accurate accuracy of power rankings, but the testing I have done, at least for the NFL has shown that it's um, better at predicting future wins than, um, a, a pretty broad cross section of power rankings I looked at, whether it's, you know, something very, uh, analytical like uh, DVOA from Football Outsiders or whether it's more judgment-based like something from ESPN. And so the, the thought process was um, you know, essentially kind of like how do I you know, take this really valuable information, which is the closing odds or closing point spread, and re-engineer like how I think the market was kind of came up with this point spread. Um, and that also gives you um, – it's also valuable from the standpoint of like if you want to do future season proje- uh, projections as well. Um, it's a really powerful base to like you know project um, playoff odds, um, championship odds, things like that. And so um, that's been a key feature of the site, and it's just been a, a matter of like expanding it to all the sports that I could, and, and each one has its own kind of challenges. So 
um, for a sport like baseball where there's not really a, a run spread for the most part. It's more money line based. How do I convert money lines into something like a point spread that I can uh, add and subtract and kind of build a power ranking from? And so that, that was a challenge. And then uh, probably the biggest challenge was on the horse racing side where um, not only do you have odds-based markets, um, but it's also not just a binary contest. It's not just horse A versus horse B. You've got 10, 12 horses in a race um, and, imply, and probabilities implied by the odds for all of them. How do you take all that information and then distill that into a, a power ranking from 1 to 35,000 of North American thoroughbred horse races? So um, that, that was a lot of fun. Um, that was probably the biggest uh, challenge I had in terms of building a implied betting market ranking. But um, what I was able to create from that was, as you called out, uh, RoboCap, which is essentially a um, automated um, handicapping model where you could input uh, any horse that's run in North America in the past six months, um, put any field in there, and it will uh, spit out implied odds uh, for the horse racing uh, field that you choose. Um, and I've been doing some back testing on that recently. I haven't had a chance to publish it yet. But um, what I found is it's about as smart as your average uh, morning line handicapper. Um, it's definitely not as smart as the handicappers at the big tracks. Um, but when you average it across the bigger tracks and the smaller tracks, it's uh, for a simple model, I was happy with how well it, it um, could predict odds uh, compared to um, a, a standard morning line handicapper. That's wild. How do you just generally or in specific sports, even horse racing, how do you prioritize? Because like you said, there's so many different things that can be factored in. And, you know, it doesn't need to be these specific examples with um, some of these rankings, but just generally, whether it's at the office with health insurance or, or sports or racing, how do you prioritize all the different variables that might be relevant without doing something like capturing them all in a, in a spread, for example, but even with uh, with sports, when people talk about DVOA, like you mentioned, or QBR, or passer rating, or football outsiders say this, and um, you know, pro football focus say that, and there's just so much out there. Is there some way to to prioritize things? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I have like a a magic bullet for that one, but I, I would say I definitely have a bias towards simplicity um, and really focusing on, you know, what you think the real relevant variables are and, and not getting distracted by complexity or, or black box modeling. And so um, I've ne never been a, a huge fan of, of like the football outsiders model just because of that, because it's uh, very opaque. It's not very clear what they're trying to measure or um, uh, you know, how it how it comes up. And then that's their right. It's their model. And they, they, they can be as transparent as they like. And um, it does get a, a lot of... Um, Attention, I think it does have good predictive accuracy, but um, my bias is definitely for um, simplicity and you know, choosing inputs uh, very judiciously and not bringing in extra factors into your model unless you're really sure it has predictive accuracy. And so like one example would be on the horse racing model. I actually tried to dabble in bringing in jockey into it, mm -hmm. see if that would improve predictive accuracy. And what I found is that it did, but it was so marginal that it really didn't even feel worth it. Like the, the important variables for horse racing were the closing odds and then their finishing margin. And aside from that, like what I found was just they're just everything else was at the margins. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that can um, that are really smart and kind of mine those margins for edges. But it was not something that um, I felt I was uh, capable of doing. Interesting. Have you ever thought about what you would do if you were... Uh 
let's just say you left your your day job and you had to bet professionally in baseball or you had to bet professionally in horse racing, let's say, if you had to take these betting market rankings, let's say that you've already created and the work you've done there, how would you go about next step in terms of uh, making those models, your predictions, what your bets might be into long-term winning? Have you ever gone down that rabbit hole in terms of what things you might get to next if you had a bit more time? Um, uh, yeah, I've gone down it a bit, but just not not had enough time to really kind of play it out. But um, yeah, I, I think I would go back to trying to build you know a bottoms up model again, and maybe using some more recent techniques that um, have come more become more widely adopted. So a lot of the the models I built you know many years back were fairly straightforward linear regression models that just regression, nothing too fancy. Um, have been able to kind of play around with more advanced machine learning techniques, gradient boosting, things like that. And so that's probably where I would go with it. And, you know, and, and in that case, that's where I probably would not err on the side of simplicity, but really go complex and just pull in as much data as possible. And then, you know, figure out how to train, um, you know, some of these more advanced models to tease out patterns that, you know, you'd never be able to intuit on your own. So I want to talk about in-play in a moment. Before I do, just one more general question for you around one of the biggest problems in, in sports and certainly horse racing is just sample size. You don't get the same teams playing each other. There's not enough games in a season. Like you said, on horse racing, you know, a certain mix of horses will probably only ever race each other once and that type of thing. They might have head-to-head uh, in different races previously, but there's always different distances, different tracks, all that type of thing. How do you, or how would you suggest someone who's new to this space deals with some of those small sample size issues that are forever going to exist, but you have to find a way to factor that in somehow and maybe not get too excited about certain things or from a physics, actuary, uh, unpredictable perspective, whatever the right angle is, what's some of the things that you think about from that perspective? The, the word triangulation comes to mind and that particularly when you're dealing with small sample sizes, whether you're an actuary or you're a gambler is... The specific question you're trying to, to answer, maybe you only have you know, 10, 12 data points to go on, but there are probably a lot of related questions that maybe not be exactly what you're trying to solve for, but um, is close enough that you know, if you look at it from that perspective, that may give you a hint as to whether you're on the right track or not. And so that's something we try to do on the actuary side as well, is you know, we'll have one analysis saying one thing. And we'll try to approach it from a different angle. Like maybe, you know, we're analyzing this book of business and it says, you know, this is what's happening with um, inpatient costs. Um, well, how about we look at another book of business? Are we seeing the same trend? And, and does that validate what we're seeing here? And so you can definitely do that um, on the sports analytics side. Um, you know, one example that comes to mind is when you're analyzing uh, a big sports analytics problem is fourth down decision making. And, you know, there's only so many times a team goes for it on fourth and one. Um, and there's some bias there when they go for it. But one thing you can do if you're just trying to figure out the probability of whether a team is going to convert on a fourth and one or fourth and two, um, look at third down conversions as well. You've got a much larger data set there. And maybe teams play a little bit differently when it comes to third down versus fourth down. And that's kind of where your domain knowledge comes in. But that's like one way you can kind of expand your data set in a way that may not be absolutely perfect to the answer, the question you're trying to answer, but is definitely going to give you um, more information, a greater sense as to whether you're on the right track or whether you're just getting fooled by a small sample size. So in play betting, tell me in play, you know, win probability models, you touched on a little bit before, but just tell me about, I'm more interested in your mindset when attacking this type of problem and you know you obviously do some research you figure out what you want to try and achieve and then go about building it 
what does that process entail for someone like yourself? Um, the, the first step of the process is definitely the data acquisition, um, and and that I think as I mentioned before, that that can be the the hardest part at times of uh, sports analytics is just figuring out where the data is and how to get at it and put it in a, a nice organizable format. So that, that's definitely the first step. When it comes to to building models, particularly win probability models in game, the the biggest challenge I, I think you often you'll often find is. Um, how much you want to smooth your data. Because oftentimes what you're trying to do with a win probability model is just kind of look at history and kind of smooth it out to get to like a better, um, more accurate uh, prospective prediction. And so um, how much you want to smooth is a really tricky uh, question to answer. And you're kind of trying to find that, that Goldilocks zone that where you're not smoothing too much. So if you're smoothing too much, then maybe you're going to say that a team that's up by five with, 20 seconds left only has an 80% chance of winning because you're bringing in data points from teams that were up by five with six minutes left or something like that. So you don't want to smooth too, too much because you're just going to bring in a lot of data points you don't really need. And on the flip side, you don't want to smooth too little because then you get um, just nonsensical results from your model. So if you're smoothing too little and just taking, you know, really tiny slices of your data, you can come up with a model that says a team that is, up by four with two minutes left is uh, more likely to win than the team that is up by eight points or something like that. And so to, to make sure you're, you're kind of finding that right zone, um, you should be as, uh, say, be as systematic as possible, particularly if you're dealing with a sport like the NBA, where there is no lack of data points for you to build a model. So there, there's no, no reason you can't be very systematic in just testing out different smoothing windows and like how much, how many data points do I need to bring in? to get to a, a properly calibrated model. So you want to make sure that you're um, testing your model on one data set and then, or training it on one data set and then testing it on a completely independent one and figuring out where that, that Goldilocks zone is, where you're smoothing just the right amount and not uh, creating a model that's just uh, driven purely by randomness. Um, so that's, that's the, the big step is just, you know, getting the data and, um, modeling out from a, an appropriate perspective when it comes to uh, smoothing. Um, and then uh, the, probably the next hardest part is as you get, particularly in in-plays, you get closer to the end of the game, things get very nonlinear. And so you've got to really be careful there. And I, I've tried my NBA model to factor in like how teams play when they get in those closing minutes and, and things start playing out very differently than when they're, you know, 10 minutes left in the third quarter and up by five versus a uh, minute left and down by two. The, the game plays very differently, and um, you can get uh, thrown off uh, course if you're just kind of doing a, a very smooth linear model. And so uh, what you want to try to do is you know, just kind of take a closer look at your data, and, and what I did was almost kind of build a model by hand as I started getting to the, the last minute of the game because I knew my standard techniques were just not going to work. Um, I will be honest, I think probably that, that part of the model still needs some work. Um, I think it's probably not calibrated just right based on the results I've seen. But um, th those are, that's part of the thought process that, that went into building that model. How do you go about measuring how good that model might be? Are there ways to, you know, if there's a 67% chance of this team winning halfway through the third quarter, what can you do to try and measure that specific example or just generally how the performance of the model is? Uh, fortunately, there's uh, a lot of kind of established techniques for that. Um, one is just, um, you know, to your point, um, if your model says a team is, you know, 60% to win in a certain situation, one thing you can do is 
take all the instances where your model says a team is 60% to win and then uh, look to see what actually happened. And if your model's calibrated correctly, um, that team should win about 60% of the time. And you can do that basically at kind of the full range of probability thresholds, so 2%, 5%. Um, and so that's one way to just make sure your model's you know, properly calibrated is that when you say it's 10% of the time, um, it is actually 10% of the time. Um, that's one way to do it, but I, I think that's um, only gets a part of the picture because you could have a really you could have like a really dumb model that just says that every team always has a fifty percent win probability, and that'll show up as properly calibrated because you'll just at, if you just pick things at random, you're you're going to have fifty percent. So um, what you're really trying to do is better predict you know when a team is actually going to win. So like a absolutely perfect win probability model would be one that is at 100% for the entire game uh, for the team that won, which is obviously impossible and not a realistic standard. But there are ways to score models that basically can tell you like how close your model got to actually predicting the winner. And so I have done some work on that um, and tried to compare it to another publicly available win probability model. And so what I've found so far, at least compared to that, is um, that the, the model I've built uh, does seem to have a slight edge when just kind of measuring against predicting which team is actually going to win. So that was validating in, in terms of, you know, it seems like the model's kind of on the right track. Um, and one thing I, I've just started doing recently, I just haven't had a chance to really kind of play it out, is I now have a way to compare against the actual live betting odds. Um, so I've got a source for that. And so what I really like to see is how well my model compares against the, the live betting odds in terms of predicting the final winner. I have a hunch that it's probably going to underperform against that, but um, that would be another way to, to test how well your model's doing. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see against a Novig line or a even money line if that was interesting enough to, to pursue. Uh, I want to ask, I, got a, I actually got a question recently that I thought it might be a good one to throw at you just to see what your reaction might be if, let's just talk NFL, if there's a, a seven-point home favorite, so around touchdown favorite, and they go down, you know, 7 nothing, 10 nothing. 14 nothing early in the game and those in-play odds drop to around Pickham. The question was essentially, is it worth blindly betting those type of scenarios? Because <laughs> the rationale was if it's minus seven before the game and, and early in the first quarter, at the end of the first quarter, uh, it's Pickham, then you're getting, if you were if you were grading it at the uh, the pregame line, you would be getting some, some closing line value in inverted commas and that would be worthwhile if you kept doing that over a long period. These questions often come up all the time, and it really obviously depends on, you know, what you're betting, where you're betting, how you're betting, what sport, all those other things. But just generally, attacking these types of questions and problems, is this just a, can this be solved from a data perspective where you get enough information and just go through the process? Or are there other things that needed need to be factored in when thinking about these types of things that I'm sure many sports bettors, horse racing bettors, and everyone else has questions about all the time? I, I, mean, I, I think, you know, from that perspective, I think you definitely would want to just start with the data. And, you know, like I mentioned, you know, there's only so many NFL games, say, in a season. So, you know, looking for those particular situations, you may not be able to get a large data set. But it kind of, as I mentioned before, also, like, you can expand your data set, like, you know, by, you know, maybe it's not just seven-point favorites. You look at eight-point favorites, nine-point favorites, and you kind of expand your data set and, Maybe you want to start narrow and see how many data points you get there and like what the general trend is. But um, you can you know, probably get a better answer by expanding, you know, four point favorites, 10 point favorites, seeing what the, the trend is there. 
expanding the scoring margins because you know the um, that early in the game you know, things probably proceed kind of linearly, so you can kind of do your own kind of internal linear regression to kind of figure out where teams are going to be. But my, I do think those are like really interesting questions um, that speak to I, I think when it comes to sports, there, there's a lot of effort that's discretionary, and so. What's really interesting, I think, about when probability models, particularly in the NBA, um, for the most part, they're, they're pretty straightforward. If you're up, you're going to have a higher win probability. Where it gets really interesting is situations like you're calling out here where you have a favorite that falls behind early. And I do think, um, based on some of the models I've seen, I think at times it's not appreciated like how discretionary ever can be. So if you have a team that's just truly better than the other team, they may fall behind early, but they can essentially you know kind of whether it's just through effort or through you know playing not playing their bench as much you know kind of regain the ground that they lost early on and so i think in general my bias would be to to trust the favorite even if they fall behind early just because i think there's a lot of discretionary effort that can come into play and so if if this strong team falls behind early they are more than likely to you know kind of recover from that that early setback yeah, and I think that's my intuition as well. And I think there was even a recent example. I think it was the Rockets were playing the Clippers, and the Clippers were shooting very, very well from three, and they were up. And I think the Rockets in play were something like seven, eight, nine to one at certain points, and they come back and win, uh, given it was early in the game. And and some of those um, regressed, you know, those shooting numbers, for example. And there are, you know, people would say, well, of course, it's the Rockets, the way they play. It's much easier than than other teams or if it's the NFL you know if it's if it's the the Ravens this year you would say well of course you know they're going to continue to try and score heavily whereas other teams with uh certain coaching might just you know run the ball a lot more and have less chances of scoring when they go up so the chance of the other team coming back is is potentially better and so on so the 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 challenge with a lot of these is once you get down that rabbit hole you can get further and further down and you don't want to rely on one or two games or a very small sample and it takes a bit more of a a broad approach to, to have more comfort in, in these type of, um, you know, hypotheses. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say, I, mean, I think there is, maybe not in the NFL, but there's definitely data to support this. I think kind of my model will, I think for the most part has been pretty good about in those situations where a heavy favorite falls behind. It really takes a pretty large scoring margin for those odds to dip below 50, uh, particularly early in the game. And, but that's all the data can tell you that it, it, there's enough data in a sport like the NBA, where you, if you build your model right, um, it'll pick up on those types of dynamics pretty uh, cleanly. So before I let you go, I have a couple of more general questions. The first one is just, if you had unlimited amount of time, are there any areas that you would like to dig into a lot deeper, whether it is on the, the betting market side or, or betting generally, or or just the data analytics on, on sports or horse racing or other things? Um, if, if I had unlimited time, and this would probably require some um, additional data to get as well, but I, I would really love to continue the work I've done on uh, NBA shot mechanics. So I um, had a lot of fun building um, a lot of analysis when it comes to the tracking data that was once publicly available, um, now is uh, um, no longer available, but um, that you can analyze, um, a lot of people analyze the motions of the players, but um, where I had a lot of fun and, and did a lot of uh, research was analyzing the motion of the ball. And I, that's where I'd really love to continue to dive more deeply is really understanding um, shot mechanics of a player, launch angles, launch velocities, um, when a player comes up short on their shot, when they're like leaning to the left, things like that. 
Um, if I had the access to the data in a limited time, that's, I, I mean, there's just a, a whole host of uh, analyses that can be done. Uh, I think particularly with today's MBA, where outside shooting just continues to be more and more important. I think, you know, understanding, um, you know, what makes a good shooter versus not, I think it'd be a really interesting question. I think the data is there to uh, really uh, tackle it in some unique ways. If a professional or even a semi-professional sports better, let's say, comes to you and says, I'm going to go and get an actuary degree. I'm going to spend the next X months or years doing that. What's the return on capital or the return on investment for that type of person over the, you know, the rest of their career, let's say? Um, I mean, I'd say it's, if you look at job rankings, I think actuary has historically been at the top um, in that it's, um, if you've got the, the aptitude and the willingness to go through the uh, battery of exams, and, I, and that's one thing I would call out, it's, um, it's not a short process, and that's just like one exam you take and you're an actuary. It's a multi-year process. Um, you're doing it while you're you know, working full-time as well, so there's a, a big time commitment there to just get through the all the exams. But um, it's in, in terms of you know what you get out of it, it's, it's uh, been a you know, tremendously rewarding career for me in terms of uh, being able to answer important questions um, that, are, that are really intellectually challenging. And so, um, you know, I, I definitely recommend it, you know, for, for folks that have, you know, that mathematical aptitude that, that really like to um, answer real world questions and, and, you know, make predictions and um, help companies manage risk. So it's, um, uh, from my perspective, it's a, it's a, a definitely a positive ROI. So final one for you, what do you read? Do you, do you like 538 and ESPN or do you read broadly or do you hone in on, you know, writers you like, topics you like, and then maybe publications that you like? Um, I don't read nearly as much as I would like, just given uh, time commitments of everything going on. But um, I'm a huge fan of 538. I think um, they're, they're the gold standard when it comes to uh, data-driven analysis, um, particularly when it comes to uh, transparency. I think they really need to be commended for that in terms of um, how they build their models, um, sharing their data, sharing how their models perform. So um, 538 is definitely definitely at the top of the list of what I read. Um, when I have time, I um, like reading uh, um, you know, Zach Lowe uh, from ESPN, um, Chris Herring from 538. Um, it's just a matter of finding the time to do so. So before I let you go, what's your Twitter handle and also the site? What, we can, what can we expect there moving forward for those that maybe haven't had a look yet, should definitely go and do it. But just, just generally, what's, what's coming there and also your Twitter handle? I uh, say so a Twitter handle is uh, at inpredict. Um, websites in predictable.com in terms of what's coming. Um, I, um, I mentioned some of the testing I'd done on RoboCap. I did want to uh, publish something uh, more on the, the horse racing side. Um, there's some more things on the NBA that I've got in the works. That I hope to publish, um, in the coming season. I had something in the works for uh, college football when it comes to college overtime. I think I'll probably have to wait maybe till next season, but, um, that's probably what's uh, coming down the pike in, in uh, the near future for the site. Sounds interesting. That college stuff might be very interesting. So thank you very much for your time. It's much appreciated. It's, uh, it's certainly an area that we, we don't hear enough about publicly and, and applying it to betting generally. It's, it's been fun chatting. I appreciate you coming on the show. All right. Thank you, Jake. I really appreciate the opportunity.